The following lecture was produced by the Rhode Island Student Assistance Services with funding from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Welcome to the Rhode Island Youth Mental Health Webinar Series. This week's topic, the impact of excessive social media and technology use on teens, what we can do about it, presented by Michael Zwill. Remember, your feedback is important to us. Please fill out the survey in the description below for your chance to win a $100 gift card. Thank you. So hello everyone, and thank you for joining this learning experience on the impact of excessive social media and technology use on teens, what we can do about it. I'm Colleen Judge, Director of School-Based Services for Rhode Island Student Assistance Services. We're proud to bring you this series of webinars focusing on youth mental health and trauma and the unique role that parents, educators, and communities play in fostering resilience in youth. This series brought to, is brought to you in partnership with the Rhode Island Department of Health. For those of you who've attended our other webinars, you know the drill. And for those of you joining us for the first time, located below this video, you'll see a description box with links to our website and our Facebook page, where we'll let you know when more content like this will be released. In addition, don't forget to complete the post survey so we can get your input on topics for future webinars. By completing the survey, you'll have the ability to receive contact hours and a chance to win a $100 gift card. I am very proud to bring you Michael Zwill. Michael is a licensed clinical social worker with experience working in various psychiatric settings, including inpatient acute care, as well as a supervising therapist in an outpatient mental health and substance use clinic for children and adolescents. Michael's done over 50 presentations in the community on the topic of social media and excessive technology use geared towards clinical professionals, school staff, and parents. He's also a featured panelist in this year's Humanitech series and interviewed in Behavioral Health Magazine on the topic of adolescent mental health. Currently, Michael works as a clinical outreach specialist for Newport Healthcare, and he's in private practice. So please put your questions in the chat and Michael will answer at the end of his presentation. And thank you again for your interest in this very timely topic. I am now pleased to turn it over to Michael Zwill. Thank you so much, Colleen, for the introduction. And hello, everybody. Thank you so much for making it out tonight or, or zooming in tonight. So thank you again, Colleen, for the introduction. And, you know, you definitely kind of laid it out as far as what the purpose of this conversation is tonight. You know, we're going to touch, touch on a bunch of different things. And as Colleen mentioned, I've done this presentation a lot in the past for clinical professionals and parents and, and kind of, you know, a lot of different disciplines. And one of the things that always came out, because a lot of the presentation was more based on the addictive nature of technology. You know, why do we continue to be drawn back? Why are adolescents specifically more susceptible or, or you know, highly susceptible to that quote unquote technology addiction or excessive screen time addiction? But then the question came about, you know, well, what do we do about it? Yes, we know why it's addicting. We know what's kind of dragging us back but what can we possibly do about it? So this presentation I put together, and it continues to develop over, over months and years because as we know, technology is always changing. Tomorrow will probably be a brand new app that the, the kiddos are playing with that will be completely foreign to us. I, I unfortunately learned, I was doing this presentation, I was pre-COVID uh, in a school and I mentioned Facebook and they're like, what are you talking about Facebook for? No one uses Facebook anymore. Now it's all Instagram, Snapchat. So, you know, the, this is continuing to evolve and, and obviously as parents and, and clinicians, our way of uh, addressing it and, and our techniques as far as uh, speaking about the dangers of excessive technology use uh, will continue to change as well, I'm sure. So right off the bat, I like to highlight what we already know, you know, different types of social media. Um, of course, like I said, when I got left at the school, I mentioned Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you know, a lot of these things are, are seen as social media. And I added video games into this because, you know, one of the big things we've seen is video games from when I was a child and when you were a child has changed drastically to what video games are now. Like when I was a kid, you were playing, the controller had about three buttons. The only person you spoke to was your buddy sitting next to you on your left or right. And you played the game together. Now, you know, things like Fortnite and things of that nature allow us to play with potentially hundreds of different people and talk to people all around the all around the globe and the ability to kind of share information and receive information. So this has kind of gone from 
in the past, not really being social media per se, to now more of a social media actual platform and a huge phenomenon as far as excessive screen time. I mean, in the, the pandemic alone, we saw the arising of esports and actually people making a very significant amount of money by being very good gamers and becoming pro gamers. I'm actually friends with one of my closest friends who's a pro gamer. And I also added on to this in the presentation, something called Finsta. So we'll talk a little bit more about this. I don't know if anybody on this, uh, this training is familiar with Finsta, but basically what it is, is a fake Instagram account. So this is actually something, one of the things I love about doing this presentation with adolescents is I learned so much from them. And Finsta is actually one of the things that I was educated on uh, with, a, with a young individual I was working with at the time. So this is just some different types of social media. A lot of times what I focus on a lot is on the positives of social media. So we could talk about it all day, you know, being able to share pictures, being able to share ideas, look things up that we wouldn't have had access to 20, 30 years ago, that now literally we scroll through our phone and are able to pull it up. So there's a ton of positives that come with tech use. So I don't want this presentation to turn into just the gloom and doom. However, a lot of the focus is going to be on more of those negative consequences of excessive screen time. So right off the bat, some of the negative effects that we see specifically with adolescents, we are seeing individuals not learning how to have face-to-face -face conversations. This is you know, even more in particular exacerbated over the past year with regards to school and now kind of going from an in-person learning to more of a virtual learning platform. And still many schools are still on a hybrid or fully virtual type of a, of a setting. So we're seeing individuals not having to learn face-to-face -face interactions with one another. And the way I kind of equate this is not unlike somebody who goes to the gym. So if I'm going to the gym and I'm working out, I'm continuing to, to hone in on my craft. I'm continuing to bulk up or, or you know, develop increased stamina, whatever it is that I'm going with. But as soon as I fall off, as soon as I stop going to the gym, I'll notice, you know, some of that muscle mass I'll start to lose, some of that stamina I'll start to lose. And, and I kind of chuckle a little bit about it because this is, this is who I am. Like I'll go to the gym hard for a couple of weeks and all of a sudden I fall off and I notice a difference. This is not unlike conversations and, and having social skills. When we are taken out of that element, when we are taken away from the need to think on our feet, the need to be able to react in uncomfortable situations, those skills start to suffer a little bit. And especially, like I said, this is different for a 35, 45-year-old adult to the degree that we've had time to kind of hone in on this and, and become stronger social interactees, I guess I would say. But adolescents, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old, they haven't really been on the planet all that long. And, and really, in, in the grand scheme of socializing, don't have the same skill sets as far as social interactions as an adult would. Another thing is having a way to avoid and or work around poor social skills. So again, if I don't like being outside of my home, if I don't like physically being at school, I got a pretty great way to get out of it now. I have the ability to do an, uh, a hybrid type of a, a schedule. I have the ability to fully learn virtually. I have the ability to interact with people without leaving the comfort of my own room. We are seeing, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in uh, the presentation as we go on, but we're seeing episodes of increased anxiety. And a lot of this is triggered from that phenomenon of having decreased life satisfaction, playing the comparison games and body dysmorphia. And there's a big thing now, uh, which many of you might even already be familiar with, something called Snapchat dysmorphia. So we've kind of become a culture that it's uncomfortable now taking pictures unless I have a beautiful filter to kind of put over my face or changing the coloring or whatever it might be. So, you know, again, when we kind of slip into this comparison game and feeling like we are not you know, adequate enough without putting a filter on things or doctoring up a photo, it leaves us for disappointment ultimately, because at some point we have to leave the home. At some point we have to physically be in front of people and you're not going to have a filter over your face when you're doing that. There's actually apps that you could download that allow you to play with the facial features on your face. So, you know, if I'm not happy with the size of my ears, I'm not happy with my hairline, whatever it might be, I have the ability to doctor up this photo and make it my own. So that can become my profile picture. And, and again, it leads to this increased anxiety because at some point people need to see the true Michael. And when I go out of the home, this is what you know leads to that increased episode of anxiety. Increased incidents of bullying and more extreme bullying activities. Many of us, I would imagine all of us on this call are very familiar with the buzzword cyberbullying. You know, so in the past, again, when we were younger, before social media, before smart technology and things like that, we would be at school from seven to three or eight to four, whatever your school day is. And if we're dealing with bullying, it's, it's obviously never a positive thing. But if we're dealing with bullying, at some point, we get to leave and go home to the solace and the comfort of our own room. So at some point, we get to check out for the day. It was a crummy morning. It was a crummy afternoon because I was getting bullied. But you know what? I got the nighttime to kind of chill out and relax. We don't see that anymore. Now people are getting bullied at school, and that continues to follow them home when people are bullying them on, on different social media type platforms. And what we see is the severity of the bullying has worsened. So a lot of times, and, and everybody on this call might have fallen victim to this in some way in their own life. Like I know sometimes I might respond differently 
if I am texting somebody versus when I see them in person. Like I might be a little bit more brazen. I might say something that I wouldn't typically say in front of that person because I don't have to see their reaction. I don't have to see the disappointment on their face. I don't have to see them crying. I don't have to really think about it because they're not there. They can't really react to me. So, you know, you see a lot more evidence uh, and episodes of more intense bullying because you don't have the person physically in front of you. Desensitization, information age versus disinformation age. So again, we've seen a culture that will kind of take things at first glance and assume that's the case. So, you know, there's not as much digging into what the truth is. There's not as much kind of doing your own research. And there's this overload of information, and especially again, for adolescents, adults as well, of course. But, you know, getting this flooding of information sometimes could do more harm than good. Because again, you know, you're kind of getting bashed over the head with seeing different news articles or, or seeing different videos that are popping up on YouTube. And it's leading to also kind of becoming desensitized. Like one of the things that I like to compare it to, one of my favorite stories actually, well, not favorite stories, but one of the stories that I really recall with my mother was her kind of describing a movie when she was younger called The Mummy. Um, now I'm not calling about the, I'm not talking about the Brendan Fraser mummy, like in the nineties or whatever. I'm talking about like the old school, like sixties mummy. And I remember her saying, the scariest thing that she remembers seeing or hearing was the mummy would kind of take a deliberate step and then drag the back foot. And she used to say that this used to put like the fear in the watcher's hearts because you knew something was going to happen because you heard the mummy coming. And, you know, I can't help but think, you know, adolescents watching that now would probably be sitting there falling asleep because it would be so boring because we need to see the blood. We need to see the gore. It's a different type of of society that we're in now because we're so used to seeing these things. And again, it's it's access to everything we want at our fingertips. And of course, another potential negative side effect is the excessive use of the social media. So social media addiction, why is it so addicting? This is something I want to spend a little time on. So, you know, this is not unlike, there's actually a lot of documentation and studies being done kind of comparing this to individuals who maybe struggle with some kind of substance use, uh, you know, as far as overeating, undereating, you know, different things like that. There's a lot of comparisons people will make. And the addictive potential that comes from social media or just technology in general is it's causing the reward center of the pleasure pathway part of our brain to light up. So this, this increase in dopamine and the desire to continuously stimulate that part of our brain is very, very intriguing. So if I'm doing something that I'm enjoying, it's making me feel good, it's giving me the response that I want, naturally, I'm going to continue to do it. If I'm doing something and I'm getting a negative response, I might be less likely to do it. But if I'm doing something where, you know what, I'm bored of watching YouTube, so now I'm jumping on Instagram, now I'm going to scroll through Twitter, it's kind of awesome in the sense that I'm continuous, continuing to feed that part of my brain because anything I want to do, I have access to it at my fingertips. The other thing that's important to kind of be mindful of is how our brain develops. So again, for the sake of this conversation, I'm going to kind of focus more so on adolescent brain development. But if we look at the prefrontal cortex versus the limbic system, the limbic system is responsible for behavioral and re- emotional responses. So again, that, that typical fight or flight, um, the, the survival type behaviors, more of that Uh, instinctual part of our brain. And then there's the prefrontal cortex, which is kind of like the adult of our brain in a sense. It's responsible for complex cognitive behaviors and decision-making. And the tough thing is the limbic system develops before the prefrontal cortex fully develops. So we have access to everything we want at our fingertips, yet we don't have the parent in our brain to kind of tell us, well, pull it back a little bit, stop doing this so much. This is not what you want to be doing type of a thing. We're just kind of you know, a kid with full access to anything we want at our fingertips. So this is another thing to really keep in the back of your mind. Sometimes it's more so than just Johnny being difficult, not wanting to give the phone back or Johnny not wanting to shut the video games off. It's more to it than just that. Some of the reasons why adolescents are so susceptible to this is the brain is still developing until around 25 years old. So, you know, the mid twenties, our brain is still fully developing again with that prefrontal cortex. It's still not, still not fully developed. Adolescents also have the tendency to be impulsive. You know, again, that goes back to the child part of our brain. We, we kind of want to do what we want in the moment. We don't want to have to think about the consequences. You know, we, one of the things we see, uh, and unfortunately I've seen all too often, and, and, you know, perhaps some individuals on this training have seen it as well in their own life is adolescents' tendency to kind of post things like pictures or post comments that come back and bite them. And, you know, in hindsight, they turn around and say, probably shouldn't have done it. Or, or sometimes, you know, there, there's not a ton of insight where they turn around and say, I'd probably do it again. But the issue is we throw something out there and we get the response from our peers. We get the response from our parents. And at that point, it's too late. And what I do encourage adolescents to think about or children to think about is before you post something, kind of taking a step back and saying, would I be okay if my mom or dad saw this? Would I be okay if my teacher saw this? And if the answer is no, or maybe you're not sure, maybe don't post it. You know, I think it's one of those things where it's important to kind of overthink that. And again, this is one of the things that get adolescents into trouble because we do have, or or they do have the tendency to sometimes be 
impulsive. Um, there, of course, is that desire for growing social influence and feeling connected. So again, you know, one of those things where, and I'll touch on in the next bullet, that instant gratification versus delayed gratification. With an adolescent, it's tough sometimes to go out there and make friends. You know, finding people that have similar interests as you, finding people that are into the same activities you are, that takes time. It takes effort. It takes, unfortunately, times that you're getting knocked down. You know, there are going to be those times that you go on play dates and people turn around and say, Michael, I don't want to play with you anymore. You're boring. And, you know, being able to deal with that in the moment is a really, really tough thing for a child. So you think about the desire to feel accepted where they are at this point where you're kind of starting to break away from your parents, your whole desire is being socially accepted by peers. Think about something like social media where there's already a built in connection platform, you know, in, in that regard. So I can go on, on a chat room where the conversation is on whatever video games, and I can feel like I'm with my best buddies because we all have a shared interest. There's no work being done. I'm going on there and I'm around the company of people that are awesome because we, we have the same interests. You know, that's a little bit tougher to do in real life because you need to find those people. And again, with adolescents and, and children in general, there is that instant gratification versus delayed gratification. So again, you know, one of the things I always compare this to, it's, it's interesting, is Guitar Hero. So Guitar Hero was a huge thing when I was younger. Was, I think it came out when I was in like middle school or maybe high school. But Guitar Hero, I always used to crack up because, you know, I would have friends that would play Guitar Hero for like 10 hours a day. Like they would just whip out the Guitar Hero, they'd turn on the video game, and they'd be playing these, these crazy intricate songs. And I always thought like, you know, if you put like half that amount of time into like picking up an actual guitar, you'd be touring the world, you know, playing these huge sold out shows. But that wasn't fun because, you know, when you pick up a guitar, you need to learn your scales. Uh, my undergraduate was in music education, actually. So I'm well familiar with chords and scales and all that stuff. And it's not fun. You know, you want to get out there. You want to rock. You want to have a blast. You want that instant gratification. So that is what the phone, that is what video games gives us. I don't need to become a hero. I can turn on PlayStation 4 and play as a hero. You know, it's, it's this drive to get everything we want in the moment versus having to necessarily work towards it. And this is something we're seeing, you know, manifest in, in children, adolescents, and even adults. You know, we, we do kind of fall victim sometimes to that instant gratification versus that willingness to kind of delay our gratification. So I want to spend a little time talking about its addictive nature. So having access to anything at your fingertips 24-7 is extremely intoxicating and, and a huge driver for, for individuals using technology and, and just social media in general, because nothing ever shuts down. You know, you go to a movie, you go to whatever, you go out to dinner at some point, you got to go home because the restaurant closes, the movie theater is over, you know, whatever is going on at that time. If you're on YouTube, if you're on Instagram, if you're on anything with regards to technology, you have access to anything at your fingertips for as long as you want. And that's the other big thing too, you know, social media and just these, these tech companies are very, very intelligent. You know, a lot of the times what they do is they actually hire psychologists because they want to make their content more addicting. So you look at something as simple as YouTube, you know, you watch a video and on the right, it has a bunch of recommended videos. You know, if you like this band, you're probably going to like this band. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'll like them. I'll give it a try. And that turns into watching five or six or seven different videos. And now you also see that even if I don't manually click it, it's going to the next video. You know, if, if I turn around and I don't click on the next recommended, it's going to play. I'm getting a little countdown, five, four, three, two, one, and next video starts. So, you know, again, this is extremely intoxicating. And also the ability to kind of jump from thing to thing is also something that kind of keeps us stuck. So if I'm looking at something on Instagram and that sparks a question, I'm jumping to the other thing. And it's just kind of this rabbit hole of, of different things that I can engage in. Having a connection to others and FOMO. Um, now, I can't hear everybody, so I'm not going to ask it. I usually ask, does anybody know what FOMO is? And, and oddly enough, I find it, especially with adolescents, that a lot of them don't know the term FOMO. So it actually is it's considered the fear of missing out is what it stands for. And one of the biggest things that we see happen, well, let me ask you, I, I do have the chat function. I'm going to give this a try. What do you think is the area of our life that really starts to suffer when we have that fear of missing out. Oh, nice. All right, Colleen, you got it. You nailed it. So I'm going to ask everybody else, you know, with the fear of missing out, this phenomenon, what area of your life or areas do we think suffer because of that? Love it. Being in the moment, huge. Any other takers? I got one on my in my head. I'm curious if anybody's going to say it. Self-care is huge. No question mark needed. That is spot on. Huge. All, all of these are spot on. Awesome, awesome job. The one that I was curious if it would pop up is that I see all the time is sleep. Okay, so, you know, a lot of times what we end up seeing is, you know, individuals don't want to break away from the phone, don't want to shut off the video game. It's all of a sudden one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. I got to get up for school. But you know what? My circle of friends or my online community 
are not done yet. So I'm not done yet. I can't possibly break away because I'm going to miss the drama that happens. I'm going to miss, uh, you know, upping my, my, my character as far as the attributes and things like that if I shut off too soon. So this fear of missing out has kind of impacted exactly like many of you said, just our ability to engage in self-care and also being in the moment. That is such a really, really deep one. You know, this, this is something that we've seen really impact a lot of individuals. Anonymity and the ability to engage in fantasy. So again, going back to like I said before, you know, if, if I'm an individual that maybe is not super happy with, with life. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm not happy with my, my presentation, how I look, I'm not happy with my circle of friends. I'm not popular enough, whatever it might be. I can kind of get lost in the anonymity of online play, you know, video games. I can engage with, you know, with a character that I see myself as, but that's not who I am type thing. You know, it has the ability to kind of go back to, like I mentioned before, the Finsta thing. So if my life is not interesting enough, my life is not enjoyable enough, I can kind of live vicariously through anything. You know, if I want to create a, a Finsta for Joe Schmo and all the pictures I post are about these extravagant trips to Hawaii and all these great things, I'm getting excited and, and feeding off the positive energy I'm getting with the comments that are coming through that I wouldn't get if it was my own Instagram. If I'm posting Michael's Instagram and you see a picture of my cat, all right, cool. I might get a couple of double taps that they like the way my cat looks, but that's not as enjoyable as, you know, somebody on a roller coaster type of a thing. So we see individuals getting lost in that desire to have the ability to engage in fantasy socially acceptable. This is a huge, huge one. I, you know, I use the example all the time, especially when I was physically going to schools, that if we all whipped out our phones right now and started throwing through, no one would bat an eye. Like if you're sitting in a school, you're going to turn around probably as an adult and say, well, it's kind of rude. You know, you probably shouldn't be on your phone while I'm talking to you, but no one would really bat an eye that, you know, it would be weird seeing people on their phone. You know, this is not unlike how smoking used to be. You know, when you could light up a cigarette in a restaurant, you could light up a cigarette in a movie theater. It was different times. Now, if you decide you're going to light a cigarette in a restaurant, big no-no. You know, people are looking at you. Most likely people are asking you to be removed or, or obviously asking you to put the cigarette out. It's no longer socially acceptable. So therefore, there's kind of a need to change or a reason to change because it's not accepted socially. Something like technology, video games, video games especially is becoming more mainstream uh, even more mainstream than it was. It's multi, multi-billion dollar industry. Now it's also becoming more remarkable in the sense that people are doing this as a profession. You know, they're actually talking about uh, a gentleman that I follow that does this professionally as far as research on video game addiction and things of that nature actually put up that there's actually discussion about this becoming uh, an Olympics, an online Olympics, where individuals who are pro gamers or, or very well crafted in, in their, their online gameplay actually having an Olympics for those individuals. So again, this is a big reason why it's addicting and, and more so a reason not to break away from it because it is so socially acceptable. One of the things I wanted to highlight is in the DSM-5, and, and I don't know how many individuals are familiar with the DSM, it stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's what clinicians and psychiatrists will use to uh, potentially diagnose somebody. So, you know, when we're looking at things like major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder, you can't just strap a label like that on somebody unless they're meeting the criteria. And typically criteria look like this, not in the sense that they're the same as this, but there's generally a few different bullets where you need to meet four or five of them for a period of like six months is generally what we'll see. So the reason I wanted to highlight this is there's actually in the DSM-5 something called internet gaming disorder. And this is in quotes I put on the top, a condition warranting more clinical research and experience, which basically says that before they fully strap on that this is a true diagnosis, they want to kind of research a little bit more, see how many people are impacted by this, see how it affects people's life. You know, but this, the reason I wanted to highlight this is A, it's, a, it's enough of a concern to actually end up in a DSM. So this is not just somebody like myself turning around and saying, I think we should throw this in there, let's do it. Um, this goes through rigorous testing and rigorous discussions amongst peers in, in the clinical world to kind of decide whether or not this should be in the DSM. So the other thing I wanted to highlight is how so many of these things are very similar to what you would see in the DSM as far as substance use related disorders or uh, there's a, a bigger parallel with also gambling addiction. So again, you know, that instant gratification and those intermittent rewards, you know, one of the things that pops up very often is uh, if we allow a person to kind of gamble or, or play video games and they continuously win, there's less of motivation to want to use it. What people actually come back for is when they win a couple, lose a few, and then all of a sudden they win another one. So those intermittent rewards keep people glued because it's always that game of, well, this could be the time. If I'm sitting there and every single time I, I pull the slot machine, I win, it'd probably be pretty awesome. But at some point I'm going to get up and walk away because it gets a little boring. If I pull it three times and lose and all of a sudden I hit on the fourth time, I'm staying because you know what? I'm going to win again. 
not all tech use is necessarily a problem. So one of the things I wanted to highlight is, you know, when should I be concerned? So a lot of times I talk to parents, I'll talk to peers of mine that will turn around and say, well, my son is playing video games four hours a day. Is it necessarily a problem? Well, we could turn around and say four hours a day is a pretty good amount of time. Probably people on here are smiling saying four hours is nothing. <laughs> you know, if you're playing video games, sometimes you're starting at like seven o'clock and you're playing till like two o'clock in the morning. Um, but, you know, is it necessarily a problem? So some of the things to be mindful of, worsening hygiene, you know, is some somebody refusing to come out of their room, they're, they're not taking care of themselves, where this is unlike their previous presentation. So somebody who is engaging in video games, sometimes, especially in the world we're in with regards to COVID, four hours may not be an issue. Because, you know, in, in a perfect world, Johnny might be outside playing football for three hours and only gaming for one, but now he can't physically go out with his friends. So the next best thing is I'm going to play video games. So that might not necessarily be a problem for him. But now if Johnny's used to playing video games, maybe two or three hours a day, all of a sudden that goes up to five hours a day. And now he's completely fallen off with regards to taking care of himself. That might be a little bit more of a question mark. Refusing to attend school. So again, you know, what this comes back to is basically functioning starting to go down. So, you know, if I'm not going to work as an adult, I'm not going to school as an adolescent, this is usually, uh, you know, warrants the, the, the question of what's going on. Decreased interest in offline activities. So again, if I'm used to playing video games and having a great time doing that, and nothing else seems to interest me as far as sports that maybe I used to be into or going out with friends, this is again, when we should kind of take a step back and say, is this gaming or is this tech use becoming more of a concern than uh, we thought? Increased irritability when asked to disconnect or shut down devices. That's something we're going to talk more about because a lot of times what I've seen in my own practice and just my own experience is parents will kind of turn around and say, that's it. We're done. I'm taking the video games away. And that results in the child being brought to the emergency department because they had such a huge blow up that they're breaking things, they're screaming, they become aggressive. So there's ways to have these conversations that we're going to talk more about. Continued use despite negative consequences at home, school, work, and or in relationships and preoccupation with online experiences, even when offline. So this is, this is a big thing as well. When we're broken away from it, as far as the games or just technology in general, we're still preoccupied with it. There's actually a phenomenon for individuals that are into like coding and things like that, where they'll sit there and they'll continue to tap their fingers because they're so used to the feel of the keyboard that this is almost like a muscle memory type of a thing where they'll start playing around with it. So again, preoccupation with online experiences, even when offline. So having these conversations, oh, I think it says having these conversations with my child. And this goes back to what I said before, you know, having a plan before we kind of turn around and say, I'm taking your phone away, I'm taking the video games away, because there's different ways to do it that are going to kind of help prevent that, that situation from escalating to something that's a little bit more of a concern. So engaging in collaborative problem solving by allowing the adolescent to be a part of the discussion. So a lot of times what we end up slipping into as, as adults when we're trying to reduce uh, the amount of time an individual is spending on video games or technology is we want to turn around and say, look, you know what? I know you want to play, but I don't care. I'm the parent. What I say goes, you're done. And they meet us with resistance. This is kind of the epitome of a power struggle in that sense, where you're going to kind of lay down the law. They're going to push back. You're going to have to, you know, and they continue to up the ante in that sense. Whereas maybe what would work for this particular individual is more of the collaborative problem solving. So being able to turn around, hearing where they're coming from, and especially more so now than ever, this was a different conversation two years ago, three years ago. When we turn around now and say, I don't want you playing video games as much as you're playing, you're playing it too much. The response is most likely going to be, well, mom, dad, I used to go outside and play with my friends. I can't go outside and play with my friends now. So what do you want me to do? What else can I possibly do? And you're kind of sitting there like, good point. So I think, you know, sometimes hearing where they're coming from before you give your two cents goes a long way because what you might hear from the adolescent, what you might hear from the child is this is my only way to socialize. You know, this is tough making friends right now. There's no activities. There's no clubs going on. So this is my ability to connect. Cool. Okay. I hear where you're coming from. This is my concern. You know, I feel like you do it too much. You know, it's just, there's not enough balance in our life. You know, I'm not saying you can't play video games, but 10 hours a day seems a little excessive. Can we kind of find something else to possibly do to kind of break up that that monotony in that sense and allowing you guys to kind of have more of a collaborative discussion and coming up with a plan because what you'll find is if you kind of get an adolescent or a child to kind of buy into some of the plan they're more willing to follow through if they don't like the plan to begin with they're going to find ways to get around it this kind of bleeds into the next bullet as far as exploring the why with your child so again you know not turning around and assuming that your child is just being difficult or not assuming that you know whatever you know we want to explore the why your child is getting lost in social media or video games. What are they getting from that that they're not getting in other areas of their life? And that might be something as simple as 
my friends aren't going out. They play video games all day. So naturally I'm going to play video games with them or, or whatever, you know, this might be their way of connecting. So exploring that, why they're doing what they're doing is huge. And, and this also will help your child or the person you're working with. If you're a clinician on the, on this training, the ability to kind of give you their two cents and, and explore a little bit deeper in themselves. Sometimes we do things just because we feel like we should, or, or, you know, we're just so used to doing it that we don't think about why we're doing it. So this is a little bit more of a thoughtful question for the person who might be engaging in excessive tech use as well, not waiting until we're in crisis mode. So again, a lot of times what ends up happening is we're fed up, we're tired of it. So all of a sudden we turn around and say, you're done. You've been playing too much. I'm taking the video games away. And what ends up happening in that moment is you're not able to have collaborative problem solving because we're already in crisis mode. So this is more so a conversation to have when we start noticing that things are going down a different path where maybe it's not something good. Maybe you're noticing differences in, in their lifestyle or just the behaviors, then it warrants a, a topic of having this discussion. Having a plan is key. Exactly. Like I said, so, you know, having a little bit of an understanding as a parent, as far as what you hope to see. So if you're seeing your child playing video games for 10 hours a day and you want to see that reduced to five, having a little bit of an understanding going in as far as what you're hoping to get out of this and having a little bit of a plan in place so that you can have this conversation. Having clear and uh, consistent expectations as far as tech use, how long, what needs to be done before using. So one of the individuals I heard a podcast fairly recently, I love the way they described video games or just tech use in general. So their, their mentality was, kind of viewing it as the dessert to our dinner in a sense. So once you do your schoolwork, once you do whatever, you know, whatever as the parent or the caregiver you decide is what you need to see before, turning around and saying, okay, so now you've earned your dessert today. You, you have the ability to engage in video games or whatever you're looking to do. Uh, and then also turning around and saying how long. One of these things that's super important is kind of being able to give them something to kind of keep in the back of their mind and then letting them know as they're winding down. So this is especially important for younger children as well. So if your, your thing is two hours a day, I wouldn't show up on, on the, the top of the second hour saying, okay, shut it down. Your two hours is up. Letting them know maybe after an hour and a half so they can start mentally winding down because what ends up happening is we continue to play, we get lost in it and all of a sudden we have to shut it down and I'm not ready to shut it down because I'm in the middle of this level. So, you know, again, kind of having this conversation before we're ready to shut it down. And again, this, this works for older adolescents as well, of course. Uh, generally, people do a little bit better with a plan and kind of a little bit of a countdown. When possible, allow the adolescent to have some choice. So this kind of contradicts what I said before, as far as viewing it as the dessert, you know, to the dinner type thing, but I think it's still equally effective. So if I'm allowed to use my phone or a game for one hour a day, turn around and let them choose when it is. So if you turn around and say, okay, you know what? I come home from school. The last thing I want to do is dive into homework. I want to play video games for an hour. That's cool. That's your hour. That's, that's totally fine. We'll do, we'll do dinner. We'll do shower. We'll do homework after that hour of playing because once that hour is done, they know they're done. So now if they turn around and say, you know what? I want to save it before I go to bed. Cool. That's your hour to use however you want. And again, it gets a little bit more buy-in and a little bit more control for that adolescent as far as when they're playing or when they're engaging in whatever they're engaging in. And remembering to be empathetic and refocusing on the why. So one of the things I wanted to highlight is the do's and don'ts of what I would recommend. So do encourage your child to get involved in different things. So again, this is a different world. You know, this is more relevant, I guess, pre-COVID per se, but there's still different things we could do. I mean, ultimately the word of the day is balance. So different things that they can engage in because what's super important is not trying to get rid of a behavior without something positive to fill that void. So a lot of times we see this in substance use. So people will self-medicate with things like marijuana, alcohol, whatever your drug of choice is, because it's filling some kind of void for them. So if we turn around and, and try and get Michael to stop using as much alcohol or, or using marijuana, but you don't give me something else to help cope with the feelings I'm feeling, I'm going back to what I know best. So, you know, somebody who's used to playing video games, used to going on their phone when they're feeling anxious or, or whatever they're feeling, it's kind of tough to turn around and say, I want you to stop using that when that's the thing that's making me feel good. So again, encouraging your child to get involved in other things to develop a little bit more of a balance. Explore if perhaps there needs to be a modification to the child's IEP. Um, this is something I like to mention, you know, especially I see this a lot in private practice as far as individuals struggling with the virtual learning versus the in-person learning. And I mean this more so coming from the lens of sometimes with the virtual learning, there can be a lot of distractions. So you might slip into a different tab when you're supposed to be focusing on English homework, or you might be slipping into a video game when you should be focusing on science. So different things like this, you want to kind of help the person have that, that ticket to success in a sense, you know, versus kind of letting them continue down a road where it's clearly not enough support for them. Because again, it, that temptation to slip onto YouTube or start playing on Instagram sometimes can be a little bit uh, overwhelming. Do encourage a wind, down, a wind down time at night. So again, like I was talking about before, giving a little bit of a countdown, doing less stimulating things before bed. So, you know, if I'm starting my video games at 10 o'clock at night, probably not going to end well because I'm going to get sucked into the, the social component. I'm going to get into the game that I'm playing. So it's important to kind of have a little bit of a wind down where maybe you're breaking from video games at like nine o'clock and then doing things that'll kind of 
bring you down a little bit. So taking maybe a warm shower, having a, a, you know, a little tea before bed, whatever it might be for that particular person. Have a technology curfew. One of the things that I loved, again, another podcast um, that I thought was really great was kind of where they focused on, you know, you wouldn't allow your child to kind of go in a questionable part of town at two o'clock in the morning. So why are you letting them use their phone at two o'clock in the morning? So again, you know, I think a lot of times we feel as parents, caregivers, as, you know, whoever we are in that child's life, that we kind of feel like they should be able to play it. Like, you know, we, we feel bad setting limits because this is their way of kind of socializing or whatever. But, you know, there needs to be some kind of a limit on that. Um, utilize opportunities for teachable moments and encourage an open dialogue with your child. So again, you want to keep that trust. You want to be able to help them get those aha moments in a sense. So unfortunately, all too often we hear stories about people sending pictures that had a negative uh, result or, or people that might've had a negative consequence for their excessive use or whatever it might've been, or, or some of the things they're sharing. So that's a great opportunity to turn around and say, look, this is why I, I talk to you about what I talk about. These are my concerns. I don't want to see this happen to you where it's not just coming from mom and dad. This is actually realistic for these people because they're seeing it happen to peers and, and other individuals. Try to put yourself in your child's shoes. So again, kind of going back to that why, being a little bit more empathetic and model the behaviors you want to see. I can't tell you how many times, you know, the expectation is no phones at the dinner table. Um, you know, after dinner, I want to sit down and we're just going to relax as a family and watch TV, no phones. And then all of a sudden mom and dad take out their phone because something comes up with work. So it's one of those important things to kind of practice what we preach as well. Again, kind of, you know, negating some of the things I just spoke about and, and reiterating some of the things I already spoke about in, in the presentation earlier. Don't just take video games away um, or, or phones away without a plan. It's important to have a plan for, for you to kind of know going into and also for the, the child that is impacted by this. Set unrealistic goals and expectations. We don't want to do that. So again, going back to my example before, if, if Johnny's used to playing video games for 10 hours a day or using his phone for 10 hours a day and we want him to use one, that's a pretty drastic change. So maybe the goal is not unlike medication. If you're taking a medication five milligrams, maybe completely coming off that medication could have adverse side effects. So you want to go from five to four to three. So kind of gradually bringing it down. So think that way when you're talking about video games and, and tech use in general, if you're used to playing for five hours a day, maybe the goal is one, maybe starting five, bring it down to four and down to three and, and so on. Don't assume your child will be able to set, uh, be able to self-monitor and implement own limits. Again, you know, the, the giver needs to know the, I forget the saying, the giver needs to know their own limits because the taker never will in a sense. So again, if we get stuck on that, I love YouTube, I love video games, it's my only source of entertainment and socialization. It's not always super easy internally to kind of check out and shut that off. I know for myself personally, if I'm scrolling through something on Facebook or I'm watching a video that I love, it's kind of tough to keep myself in check. You know, it's almost like the, there's this hypnotic trance in a sense where you're planning on using your phone for 20 minutes and it turns into two hours. Don't trust your child any more than you should at that age. So again, usually the rebuttal from an adolescent is you don't trust me. Why don't you trust me? And it's not that you don't trust them. It's just you don't trust them any more than you should at that particular age. There's always reason to be a little suspicious. And it's one of those things where you're not only necessarily suspicious with your child's use, it's about the other people that are out there. I remember uh, growing up talking to my mom uh, and my, my father about driving and their thing was always, we weren't worried about you behind the wheel. We're worried about all the other people that are driving. That was a tough thing to wrap my head around at the time. But now as an adult, I get that, you know, it's not just me, it's, it's, you know, how adolescents sometimes can be victim to, you know, obviously cyber crimes and different things like that. So again, you know, you don't want to trust your child and allow them to do things that they shouldn't be doing at that particular age. And don't assume change is going to happen overnight. That is a huge, important thing about being realistic in our expectations. So as a parent, it's important to be mindful of the fact that um, payment information is linked to account, even if free. So microtransactions. So this is something I'd like to kind of put this slide in there just to kind of keep in the back of your mind, because I can't tell you how many horror stories I've heard where parents will come in and say, Michael, John just spent $600 yesterday on video game stuff. And they're like, it's, it's Fortnite. How did they even get that information? What they do is they keep credit cards and information like that on file. And what we end up seeing is if you want to get the newest clothing in the game or you want to get the newest weapons in the game, they charge you. And, and they're little things. They're like, you know, 50 cents. You know, they're not huge, huge uh, expenses per se, but these things add up. And, and again, you know, there is this drive to kind of stay caught up with your peers. So if my friends are all getting the, you know, the most up-to-date weapons, up-to-date clothing, whatever it might be, there is that pure pressure per se of also wanting to keep up. So that's just something I like parents to be mindful of. The fact that payment information is linked, even if the game is saying it's free. Um, other devices in the home. So this is a big thing as well. So not many people know this or people know it, but they don't think about it. You have the ability to always reconnect. If you have Wi-Fi, old cell phones that are laying around the house, uh, iPods that are laying around the house, you have the ability to connect if you have Wi-Fi access. So a lot of times parents will turn around and take uh, a phone away, but the iPhone 6 that's sitting in my, my dresser 
they didn't take away. So I still have the ability to connect and go on YouTube or still converse with my friends as long as I have that Wi-Fi connection. A big thing we've seen even over the past uh, year, year and a half with COVID is the misuse of Chromebooks and other devices given by schools. So again, it's, it's you know, important to kind of keep an eye on what your children are doing. It's important to kind of check in every once in a while to make sure that they're using the material and, and the, the devices the way they're supposed to be used. Um, one of the things I like to highlight is uh, digital migrant versus digital native. So we are, I think all of us on this call, I'm assuming, I know for myself personally, uh, I am considered a digital migrant. So I came into this, I know the world pre-2008 when smartphones really kind of hit the market and, and just technology really just took off. Because really, I mean, they were only in 2021 and just from 08 to 2021 has been like unbelievable with the, with the tech growth. Um, but I am considered a digital migrant. I know the world before it and I know the world with it. Digital natives are the individuals that are being born from like 08 on that are kind of born into this world where this is the norm. It's very easy for us to turn around and say, well, you're using your phone way too much. But I don't know if we'd feel that way if we were born into a world where everybody has a phone. I'll never forget my nephew. He was probably probably about a year and a half at the time, to be honest with you, maybe a little bit older. He took the phone and he knew how to unlock the screen. You know, he knew to swipe because he saw us swiping our, our phone. So these things that are kind of foreign to us. We had to kind of learn it. You know, these are children that are seeing this from a very young age, and this is sticking with them. Phones and video games are a privilege, not a right. So again, you know, a lot of times as parents, sometimes we fall into that where we feel bad about taking devices away. We feel bad about setting limits, but it's important to understand that these are not rights. These are privileges. Going back to the, the saying before, you know, viewing it as the dessert to our dinner. If we don't eat dinner, we don't have the ability to eat dessert today. Oh, and one thing I want to say before I go on to the next slide, uh, this just made me think about it. You know, one of the things that I think is important to kind of mention is kind of short-term consequences versus long-term consequences. So what I typically encourage individuals and parents and families that I work with is if the expectation is that whatever, you're doing all your homework to play video games, but mom or dad finds out that you didn't do all your homework, the next day, the individual loses the privilege of the video games because they didn't keep their end of the bargain. But I would only do it for one night because what you'll see is for adolescents, when you turn around and say you lost video game privileges for a week, that's an eternity. And, you know, there's not much motivation to change anything because God, you know, my parents took away my video games for a week. I have no life. I'm not going to be able to talk to my friends. And it's kind of like this catastrophizing type of a, a situation. So what I encourage families to do a lot of times, and I've had positive success with it, is turning around and taking it away from the one for the one night with the ability for that adolescent to rebound the next day. So it's not a forever thing. You lost it tonight. This is part of the agreement. You knew the deal but you have the ability to do what you got to do to get them back tomorrow. Okay, cool. That, that's something more realistic. I'm pissed I can't play it tonight, but I'm going to turn it around so I can get my video game privileges tomorrow. So just something I like to kind of sprinkle in there, that that's something that sometimes works very well for adolescents versus turning around and saying you lost your video game privileges or your phone privileges for a full week. So I wanted to kind of open it up for questions if any individuals had questions. The last couple of things are more, and, and of course, Colleen and, and uh, Cindy, of course, you're, you're more than welcome to share this with families or, or individuals that are on this if they'd like. These are just some additional videos and, and some kind of topics, um, you know, kind of on, on this topic of, of excessive tech use that I think are really great. This one actually in particular kind of gives a list of like 100 different things that are kind of not tech related that you could do as a child or an adolescent. So they're kind of like just additional thoughts of how to kind of fill that void with positive stuff as opposed to just being glued to the video game. I had a question about, um, there are some folks online. I, I know there was one gentleman, he's kind of a life coach. I think he calls himself the healthy gamer. Dr. Oh, cool. And I was wondering what your opinion is of people like that. They're uh, trying to coach uh, young people who are perhaps are addicted to video games. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, to a certain degree, the more the merrier in a sense. I think the nice thing about that is it, I would imagine it kind of focuses more on the other aspects of life. So the coaching as far as breaking away from that and kind of maybe doing other things in life that might be enjoyable versus somebody like a therapist might be focused on more right. of the reasons we're using it type thing. So I think the nice thing is not unlike like a psychiatrist and a therapist, a psychiatrist focus is going to be on, you know, medication and, and things of that nature. And a therapist is going to kind of focus through a different lens. So I think sometimes when you have uh, a few hands in the pot, sometimes it's not a great thing, but I think in this situation, it's nice to have different perspectives. And we do have a question. Sure. Uh, how do you speak to parents about their own overuse of screens? Um, this is from Sarah. She encounters it a lot of resistance. Yeah, that, that's a really, really good question. So I, I now I, I don't know, Sarah, and, and you could I can answer it both ways. I don't know if you mean like 
for yourself specifically, like an adult in general, or just parents of individuals that you might be working with where you're talking to them about uh, their own overuse. But going back to, like I said before, you know, I think it's super important to model the behaviors that we're looking for. So again, I think it's very easy sometimes to fall victim to, well, you're the kid, I'm the adult, so I can use it, but you can't. And yes, to, to you and I, that makes sense. I'm the, I'm the disciplinarian, I'm the uh, authority figure per se, but to an adolescent or especially an adolescent with other struggles going on, some more behavioral struggles, their initial thought is to meet you with resistance. So I think in those situations, it's kind of important to kind of almost bite the bullet and, and again, kind of practice what you preach in a sense. And I think that's the way to talk about it. If you want your child to not use their, their phone at the table, yet you're using your phone at the table, that's giving them the wrong message. That's like telling your child not to smoke and then you're lighting up a whole pack of cigarettes in front of them. You know, they're seeing that it's okay to do and they're seeing that your own word means nothing because you're doing it right where in the place where you said you shouldn't do it. So I would say just bringing it back to important to model what you want to see. It's, it's one of those things where again, you know, I'd be curious to know why they are and not, not to turn it back on them. I'd be very curious. I know we've, we've become a population where we work 24 seven because we don't shut things off. So I'd be curious, are they using it more leisurely? Are they using it because they're working an insane amount of hours? Um, because then they might want to reevaluate, you know, how they're doing things because, you know, are they stressed? You know, is it okay. It's a more leisure. So again, it goes back to the question of, you know, why do you need to find leisure in this? And, and again, you know, if, if your child is using the phone as much as they're using and you feel it's problematic and your expectation is that you're not to do it, you know, at this particular time of the day or, or this particular place in the house and you're doing it, it's giving the wrong message in that sense. And Stephanie has her hand raised. Sure. And just so you know, uh, before you say what you were going to say, Stephanie, I'm, I'm putting my number in there again. I typed it in wrong, so I apologize. Um, thanks for all this information and the presentation. It was really interesting. I think oh, thank you. I heard a lot of stuff that I may have known already in terms of just how dangerous the addicting factor is in, in games and social media. So I'm kind of coming at this. I'm on the school committee in Newport. I, I don't have kids at home, so I'm not dealing with this as like a home issue. But my perspective is, how do we help the schools um, wean kids off of screens? Now, I, I don't think curriculum's ever going to change. We're going to have hybrid models and virtual school going forward for the kids who want it and opt into it and even graded into most of at least the older kids' lives, I think, on a permanent basis now. But they're coming back into school having spent all this extra time on their games and not having seen their friends. And, like, what can the schools, what should they focus on and, and what can the schools do with limited resources to, to wean the kids off and get them back into just talking to each other like human beings? <laughs> Stephanie, such a really, really great question. And really, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a thinker type question. I mean, that's, that's very well thought out. And, you know, definitely a very deep question. And I think the tough thing for schools is I don't know if there's necessarily anything you could do immediately because like you said you hit the nail on the head school has the curriculum and they have the the need to use things like youtube for lessons or just computer use in general um so i don't know necessarily if that's going to be something that reduces i think the big thing to kind of keep in the in the back of our mind is there's a lot more research and and articles coming out about less focus on the amount of time we're spending on electronics and more so focused on what we're looking at during those times so to your point you know me spending you know six hours a day on the computer for school is different than me spending six hours a day scrolling through my phone playing Candy Crush. You know, it's a different use of that technology. So I think the important thing, what I would kind of say to that question is more so kind of falling back on the parents a little bit, understanding that because my child was using their computer six hours a day to do science and English and math homework should not impact his or her ability to use electronics at night. So if I decide, you know, I want to play video games for an hour or two hours a day, that's different use of technology, you know, as opposed to what he or she was doing during the day at school. So I think differentiating what they're using the tech for uh, or the devices for is super important because again, it's not fair to turn around and say, well, you were on it for six hours a day, so you're done for the day. It was completely different than what they wanted to do. But as far as schools, Again, I don't know how much control they have as far as curriculum and things like that. I mean, I think anytime you have the ability to kind of socially interact and socially engage in different activities or do more hand-on type labs or whatever they call them now, I think those are things that really have a real positive effect. But I also do understand there's a lot of really be uh, beneficial things that come with looking at a lesson on a YouTube video or something like that. So I think, again, going back to balance, I don't know an immediate response to that question. I think it's a great one. Um, but my only response to schools would be kind of, again, seeing where we could balance the online use versus 
doing actual physical, social activities and things of that nature, old school field trips. And, you know, hopefully next year we're getting back to some quote unquote normalcy. I mean, I know a ton of schools are already returning full time. Uh, many of them are, are still doing a little bit of a hybrid, but people are physically coming in. So the hope is that next fall we could do a little bit less of the the tech stuff and the virtual stuff because people are going to be physically back in school. Bring back the field. My name's Astrid. Hey, Astrid, how are you? This. I'm really great. Really, really doing well. You know, it makes oh, me oh. think about in a way, you know, when you take your uh, dog to dog training, it's really about training the human to do things differently. And I, I you know, oftentimes I find we're talking to parents and this is historically, you know, no matter what age the kid is so many times ageism, you know, adults forget what it was like you know it's like this <laughs> they can only remember the things that matter at the moment but nothing that yep. contradicts what they're trying to do as a disciplinarian and you know when when sarah was asking that i thought you know back to the old time getting to know you icebreakers like at summer camp you know the corny old icebreakers getting the kids to just be there and standing in front of each other <laughs> yep. really when parents are resistant parents have to be trained to step back into society just as much as the young people do, if not even more, because as adults, we've kind of detached from the necessity to make new friends or to be likable. You know, I'm here, I'm here, you get used to me, this is who I am. So in a way we have to train the parents in these same activities, you know, even almost before or, or, or simultaneously at the very least. I was thinking about dog training. Oh, well, actually, I, I think it's very well said. I agree with you 100%. I mean, I think it's always important, especially when working with adolescents in particular, when you're the primary caregiver, to kind of take a step back and understand what your role and things are as well. You know, it's very easy to turn around and point the finger and say, this is my child's fault. They need to know discipline. They need to, you know, but that's not realistic. You know, you need to understand, you know, what could I potentially do different? And it doesn't mean you're a bad parent, but it's something as simple as, being mindful of my tone when I ask them to do something or being mindful of how I say something to them, because that can cause a situation going from peaceful to escalating very quickly. So I think anytime you have a chance to take a step back and self-reflect and kind of understand your role and what's going on is huge. But yes, the, the dog training one is a very good uh, analogy in that sense. I agree. Any other questions? And like I said, Colleen, if, if somebody maybe has a question that pops up and, and, you know, they think about it afterwards, I mean, more, I'm more than happy if you want to email me or give me a buzz. I mean, I, I love talking about this stuff, so definitely don't feel like you can't. And I know sometimes, I mean, myself included, I'll go to events and I'm like, oh, I should have asked that. I completely forgot. So please, you know, don't hesitate if anything pops up to reach out. Well, thank you very much. Thanks to everyone for attending. Thank you very much, Michael, for your oh, wisdom. Oh, my pleasure. And we are very happy to have you as a resource. Oh, my pleasure, Colleen. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for coming. Bye-bye. Thanks for setting this up. Wonderful, always, professional development. It's just great. Keep shining your light out there, everybody. Thanks for listening. To find more content like this and see the video version of these webinars, please see the links in the description below. If you like this one, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.